all right, let me just give you the Nathan thought on this, and then you try to tell me what you think is normal. But, like, in my mind that we would be taking political advice from somebody who's famous for inventing Quidditch is... Hello, and welcome to Thinking Out Loud. I'm your co-host, Cameron McAllister. And I'm your co-host, Nathan Rittenhouse. Nathan, Salman Rushdie has been in the news again, and this is pretty sad. So he was attacked at a reading in New York City, and he was stabbed, and he sustained some pretty severe injuries. Rushdie is now 75 years old, so I'm sure age is a factor there. It's His literary agent has said that he will likely lose an injured eye as well. I think his liver was also damaged, so this was a pretty severe attack. And it was clear that his attacker wanted to kill him as well. Yeah, well, back, and back that, way so, up for all yeah. the rest of us who don't immediately know who this is off sure. the top of our heads. Give us sure, sure. back in the day. Once upon a time. Once upon a time. Well, for those of you who don't know, Salman Rushdie is a, a writer from who lives in England. He's based in England. He came into prominence with his third book, I think it was, titled The Satanic Verses. And this came out in 1988 and was a very well-received book. I believe it won the Man Booker Prize, very prestigious literary award. And he's generally a very celebrated author. But that book is also infamous for another very different reason. It, it was the book that, was, that got Rushdie, a fatwa was basically declared on him, which is... He a, a price was put on his head by the nation and of Iran. There were mul- by the nation of Iran, yeah, and there were multiple attempts on his life. So that was like so three million so bucks that, in the eighties or something to take him out. You, that's right, three million, three three million dollars, something something along those lines. He was forced to go into hiding at one at one point. So he's a man who's been shrouded in controversy for ever since the nineteen eighties. He's also a highly celebrated writer. In recent years, some of the heat seemed to dissipate a little bit, and he kind of relaxed some of those stringent security measures. And sadly and ironically, that's when this happened. Wait, wait a so, second. Hang on. And I'll, I mean, I'll, I'll, but yeah. but the because the question I have is: so I know that the whole sick and boys thing was because the book apparently had depictions of Muhammad that were deemed blasphemous. Do you know anything about what he actually said? Or because all, all I know is that they're like, nope, this doesn't put Muhammad in a good light. Therefore, you're done. Do you yes. know anything what he so, actually said? Well, so I've read I've read some Salman Rushdie. I've not read the satanic verses. I've read excerpts from it. So it does deal with the life of Muhammad. It is set in the contemporary world, and it's also a work of, and don't worry, I'll define my terms here. It's a work of magic realism so i can't <laughs> without Ooh, boring you ah. yeah without <laughs> without boring you to tears here magic realism is a generic distinction that essentially refers to books that treat miraculous events as though they are ordinary okay another very like famous <laughs> well another <laughs> very famous writer in this in this field would be Gabriel Garcia Mar- Marquez, who, you know, who wrote, he's probably most famous for Love and the Age of Cholera, a number of very famous short stories as well. But the 
they, there are often very striking political undertones to magic realism. And that's, that's definitely the case with satanic verses. It doesn't, it does not paint Muhammad in a flattering light at all. And, you know, Salman Rushdie is not a Muslim. And so the tone of, of the novel is not devout. <laughs> and that did cause a furor. Now it is, it's a work of fiction, but so you can see some of the fascinating questions that this raised back when it came out. You know, it's, it is, it's a story. It's not real. It's a work of fiction. And yet it was responsible for, there are also some people based who said that there were riots that were happening because of that book. So, I mean, this was a very incendiary piece of writing. I think though, that if you pick the book up and you read it, you're going to be pretty surprised that it doesn't read like the anarchist cookbook or anything like that. It's not as explosive seeming. But, and this might take us into one of the first interesting aspects of this, but in the West, we're so hyper-individualistic, and we often take that for granted, we forget about worldviews, ways of thinking that are so deeply committed to their way of life and their conclusions that any kind of disrespect is seen not only as offensive, but as something that is a, that, that's that's actively harmful and a real threat and worth stamping out, you know, an act of, of such disrespect, such, you know, I mean, the word infidel comes to mind here too, but that's, that, that's a kind of conviction that seems very foreign to us here because we're, this is a democ democracy and we're talking about people who have been shaped by, they have theocratic imaginations basically. And all of that comes to bear here. So that's why I think it's interesting that he is in the news again. I'm praying for his recovery. I'll also let me just say as an aside here, I think he Salman Rushdie is an extremely gifted writer. The first time I encountered him was actually an assignment from what I realized now was a really cre creative English professor. We we read this essay on the movie The Wizard of Oz. And it was this very strange, surreal meditation that was just every bit as creative as the movie, <laughs> every bit as imaginative. And it didn't it what didn't read so much like a review or like a critical analysis as a kind of playful interaction with the movie. Beautifully written, very vivid. And it turned out, and I looked at the name on, you know, on the piece, Salman Rushdie. And I was really struck by just his now there was you know, I went to a, a little Bible college. And so the focus was on, well, this is just so postmodern. And, and there's, what is, where does the truth fit in? And, and where are the redemptive themes? And I was just hung up on, this guy can write. This is gorgeously written. <laughs> Look at these captivating turns of phrases. Okay, that's great, Cameron. But what about the underlying spiritual significance? But anyway, uh, my hey. takeaway from that was this guy's a fantastic <laughs> writer. <laughs> and, and here, once again, we have the... Uh, uh, opportunity to highlight the difference between Cameron and myself. The only time that I've seen The Wizard of Oz was in a, I had an advanced residential and commercial wiring class. So for those of you who are doing electrician, <laughs> uh, and we took a break from our normal studies to watch The Wizard of Oz on mute with uh, Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon hey, there you go. soundtrack synced to it. And I have no idea what that had to do with uh, motor controllers or anything, but uh, yeah, there you go. And nobody was talking about turns of phrases, but there's just another artistic way to engage with that media. So thank you, Cameron, for doing <laughs> the harder work than the rest <laughs> of us have done.
But if you have questions yeah. about your three so, light, w- three way light switches, I'm here to help. There you go. Yeah, and I I do believe you know this, Nathan. But I think the the general and you know you're supposed to watch it with Dark Side of the Moon in a state of let's say altered consciousness. That, that was not I'm, permissible. I'm, I'm, I'm in glad a to say fourth that you, period in high school. Yeah. Yes. That's Although right. I'm so sure I'm some of my classmates were. So <laughs> the, <laughs> the wonders of public school in West Virginia. Anyway, we're yeah, off topic. So, bringing it back around. We're off topic. I want to I bring in another piece here that I think is may seem somewhat in, incidental, but Nathan, fill us in on the J.K. Rowling connection here now. Yeah, so, I mean, J.K. Rowling has been in the news frequently in the literary world because of her, um, the way she's articulated some things on particularly, uh, trans issues and comments she's made. Um, none of which I think any, many Christians would find totally offensive or abnormal by the way. Um, however, it's very difficult when you have somebody who is seen as a literary giant who kind of crosses culture on what they're supposed to say. And this happens on stuff from classical literature that, uh, deals with themes that's considered to be very good literature, but uh, it doesn't pass our model. So, it, it, like, the connection here is similar because we do still have, like, collectively cultural defined moods that you dare not cross or else we're coming mm-hmm. after you. Now, not in the same yes. way here necessarily, but they're very alive and well. And so the degree to which we want to call that a, a radical form of cancel culture, eh, maybe we want to be careful there. Mm. But anyway, J.K. Rowling had supported or tweeted support saying, you know, basically hope he's okay. And then somebody had tweeted back saying you're next. Um, and so I think there are a number of police investigations happening because of the threats that she receives for some of the things that she's part of. So anyway, it's, it's all part of a broader, um, well, let me just, let me just throw out there what I'm thinking about some of this in the sense that I think, okay, I get it in the sense that, okay, somebody writes something you don't like that happens all the time. Um, and we say stuff that people who listen to the podcast don't like, and we appreciate you not killing us, but sending us the very polite disagreeing emails that you do, which are usually pretty much exactly right and good stuff for us to think about. Um, and we, and we enjoy and appreciate that. So there is room for respectful disagreement and dialogue. Hopefully we're modeling that well here, but here's the thing. When you take that into the religious world of, I guess if you need to kill somebody on behalf of your God, it just smacks of desperation to me. In the sense that it seems that anybody who is willing to kill somebody else in order to per, like prove their fidelity to something or to, like it's it's kind of an odd like it it very much invalidates what you're doing because if you think that your God is incompetent and enough that he needs you to kill somebody else on his behalf, that's a really strange like if God wants you dead, you'd be dead. Why does he need me to do that um so there's there's a little bit of that going on. Uh, and then from a Christian perspective, looking at it of like, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Like, he's a big boy. He can handle himself. Like, he doesn't need you to save him or his reputation in some sense. So I don't know. The, the whole thing confuses me just a little bit because I'm I'm thinking of this with a Christian perspective of who I think God to be, who is holy and does provide judgment and justice, um, but doesn't use human agents in the same way um, now, in, in the past, in the Old Testament, certainly all of that is there, and we see a radical change in how God wants his people to behave towards those who aren't part of the people of God um, that Jesus makes known to us there. So not a change in the character and nature, but we are in a different era 
and what our response is supposed to be. And so I, I think those are things that I see so clearly um, spelled out for me in the teachings of Jesus that it's hard for me to get myself in the mindset of me thinking that Christ would ever need me to kill somebody else in order to protect his reputation. It just seems like there's a mismatched understanding of actual power and authority there. Um, but I'm saying that as a total Westerner too. So there's that. Well, I mean, it's in, it's worth pointing to the theocratic imagination I was talking about there earlier. So this is where, you know, Oz, our friend Oz Guinness says comparison is the mother of clarity. And for all of the bromides about all religions being basically the same, here's where you're going to see some stark, striking differences. So major factions of Islam are deeply devoted to a universal caliphate. Mm -hmm. And they, their, their aspiration, the ambition is to see everybody come under the rulership of an Islamic state that would be, and this would be global. And so when you're thinking in those terms, then somebody who is a major public figure who makes a, makes a, you know, voices such disrespect does become actually a kind of a, a very serious threat. And you do want to see them silenced, not just to silence them, but also as a kind of symbolic gesture to send a message. And you're right. It's so that could not be more different well, from well, hang on a the second Christian there, way because of thinking. I do have a vision of the future kingdom with a good king as a Christian. It's just there's a so part of the vision is the character and the nature of the ruler of of this future uh, great time, but it's also very different in what that ruler asks of me right now. So, so the character and the nature of the future ruler is reflected in the behavior of the people who are supposed to be living lives that point to what is to come in the future. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I just don't have that urge of like, oh, here's somebody who is blatantly writing a book that's, in, in my mind, is this not analogous to like some Christian leader saying, okay, go take out Dan Brown because of the Da Vinci Code? Sure. I mean, is that, yeah, I, I mean, mean, it's a work of fiction. It's fun to read maybe, but it's like, who takes it as a serious threat to religious identity. Right. But if your identity is predicated on your social standing or the degree of power that you've achieved in this world, which if, again, if you press into Islamic eschatology, that is the case, then it will, then it, then, then the threat does rise in significance. And again, because this is, this is a completely different way of looking at well, at power. Yeah, well, there's a way of proving your worthiness for that future utopia, right? Which I think sometimes... There's a way of proving your worthiness, yeah. but also the, the notion that the blessing from, you know, basically the divine blessing, the sign of that is, you know, a universal caliphate and growing power and more and more people surrendering to Islam or being punished. And so I think another interesting question to bring in here, and this is, this is a little bit more broad, this goes beyond the scope of just Islam, but, and it's going to sound, it'll sound a little trivial, but the notion of a celebrity being a kind of role model. So 
you mentioned, you used the phrase earlier, literary giant, when you're talking about J.K. Rowling. And so when J.K. Rowling says something, it carries an outsized kind of force because of her stature. And the same is true for Salman Rushdie. And so one of the questions I think that crops up here from time to time is, all right, what is the responsibility of the celebrity? What is the responsibility of the major literary giant, if you will, given their platform? You know, okay, yeah, what but, they say will carry will carry more weight. So how do we evaluate their words on that basis? <laughs> All right. Let me just give you the Nathan thought on this. And then you try to tell me what you think is normal. But like in my mind that we would be taking political advice from somebody who is famous for inventing Quidditch. Is hilarious to me. And I mean, but this goes across like the spectrum of like, yep. oh, well, this actor thinks this. That's nice. Why do I care what? If I could think of a famous actor right now, I'd put their name in here. Like, what, What? like, okay, they're good at pretending to be somebody that they're not. Well, clearly they have a great grasp of reality and all of us should be living our lives based off of their, you know. So I, on one hand, like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm slow to critique the celebrity because it's not their fault that everybody cares so much about. I, I don't know. I mean, some of that's cultivated. Do you, there's just a there's a disconnect in my mind that I can't wrap my head around in a way that makes me take this serious. At the same time, fully recognizing that so many people do. So anyway, I'll just sit here and be quiet now. Okay, let the record show that there is visible smoke coming out of Nathan's <laughs> ears right now. Yeah. So do you I see mean, my point? Well, is it is it remotely I, I legitimate? Do see, yes. It is legitimate, and I'm in large. I'm largely in sympathy with you. But here's, but here's, here's what I want to say. So, we've talked before about the authority problem in our culture, right? Sure. How you know yeah. we're so hyper individualistic. We have a hard time, you know, first of all, locating legitimate sources of authority, figuring them out, discerning them. In many ways, though, the default sources of authority in our culture are celebrities. <sighs> now. Did they, I was trying to did they make ask my for that? loud there. Yeah. Did they ask for that? Well, yeah, in some ways, I think, yeah, I think they do. I think they play into it. And I think all of the, you know, the publicity train plays into that too. So let's just say for better or for much, much worse, celebrities <laughs> function as de facto authority figures in our culture. Okay. And so if they that. say the right things, yeah, if they say the right things, there's cheering in the street. Everybody throws confetti. We're all excited. If they say the wrong thing that doesn't gel with cultural orthodoxy, so let's take J.K. Rowling now, then they are maligned and they're in deep trouble because they violated a sacred cow and they violated the sanctity of their role as a cultural authority. So, and so yes, on the one hand, now here's where I want to make some remarks in sympathy with the, the role model thing. So, do I think it's right? No. Do I think celebrities should be authority figures? No. Do they carry huge and tremendous influence? Do they do they wield tremendous influence? Yeah, they do. And so I do think some people would say, I'm just playing devil's advocate here, that the words of a J.K. Rowling are going to matter a lot more than just, you know, Joe Briefcase in his mom's basement writing something on a subreddit thread. And so... Therefore, we need to, you know, <laughs> J.K. Lay Rowling the there, at Cameron. all. I know, right? But, but ought to think carefully about how they say what they say. Salman Rushdie. Now, Salman Rushdie does, I'm also going to say this about him, and this is, this is not an indictment of him at all. 
Salman Rushdie has a bit of a what I would call a punk rock kind of sensibility. So he he's got a he's a bit of a rebellious character. When he wrote the Satanic Verses, he did he was he aware that he was going to get that his life would become as complicated as it did afterwards? I don't think so. But was he aware that he was definitely pushing buttons? Yes, absolutely. That's part of why he he wrote it. Now, part of Part of what I think is powerful about that is that, so yeah, you mentioned people just acting, just making movies, or just writing books, you know, about with Quidditch and all in that, all of that in them. Yeah, they are, they're fictions, they're fantasies, but they're not neutral. I want to give you a chance to just re- respond to that, <laughs> see what you think about that. I don't think movies or books are neutral artifacts. No, and yeah, and they're they're they are carefully crafted productions in order to convey ideas that are much deeper than what you would superficially get just from the script. Um, and and oftentimes you watch something that's highly entertaining, and if you step back for a second, you think that is terrible. Actually, like the the underlying no, ideas they, there was that not just ideas, not just yeah, ideas. they but, influence people. Yeah, well, right. So they so they they set you up for seeing the world. Remember your your uh your old buddy David Foster Wallace, right? His idea that we that largely what we see on television is there because that's the way that we want to think that the world actually is. And so that yep. part of what we're seeing visually in our participation with uh the arts, if you want to call it that in the literary world and from streaming device like the the reason those things work is because they are a carrot on a stick sort of for the way that we want the world to be and uh once we're set up in that way then we're highly suggestible in what we can be taught through them so yeah i mean i guess what i'm getting at here is also yeah art makes stuff happen sometimes i mean sure salman rushdie got stabbed because of a book he wrote yeah. That that's pretty remarkable. Another, I'm going to give you another example because it's fresh on my mind. Because it's some of you may know, I'm I'm working on a book with my old professor Phil Talon on horror movies, and one of the films that we look at is A Clockwork Orange. I know we're cheating a little bit. Clockwork Orange is technically probably more science fiction, but so when A Clockwork Orange was initially a novel by Anthony Burgess and then it was made into a movie by Stanley Kubrick, probably, I think, arguably one of the greatest directors who ever lived. And no I'll surprise, it. it, yeah, no surprise, it was an, inc- it's an incredibly powerful, very powerful, very jarring, very, very disturbing film. And w- after it came out, though, Kubrick ended up eventually seeing to it that the movie was banned in the UK for the entirety of his lifetime. It was only, it was, I think after he died, it was released theatrically finally as mm-hmm. a, in a sort of celebration, but there were copycat crimes that were happening in the UK, quite a string of them actually. And it was so powerful that the, the author of the book, the novelist, you know, you know, Burgess basically said, this has changed my mind. I used to think that art was in its own distinct sort of pristine sphere that wouldn't, you know, doesn't influence people to do anything. It just is art. You know, it's it's serenely detached. He said, but I've, I've changed my mind. Art can be extremely dangerous. And this this film has done that for me. So I think it's, yeah, so for, I think this, 
part of what I'm I'm getting at is that these, you know, the satanic verses, the Harry Potter series, they are part of what makes them powerful is that is their non-neutrality and that they they wield a a tremendous influence. And generally speaking, the you know, the the higher the skill, the more intense the skill set behind it and the craftsmanship, the wider that influence and the more powerful the art. So yeah, I think we're just I'm pointing to an amazing sense of potency in creative works that can be dangerous at times. Okay, but just be two sides of this. Someone is yes. On the other hand, just because it's dangerous to say the truth doesn't mean you shouldn't say the truth. So Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I'm totally with you. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm not in no way am I arguing that you know the satanic verses should never have been published it's an irresponsible piece of writing in no way am i arguing that you know jk rowling shouldn't be able to respectfully express her thoughts even when they come with you know even when they're in sharp disagreement with sort of some of the current cultural mores absolutely but what i am saying is that there is i mean I guess I'm just pointing to the non-neutrality of our entertainment habits and our art habits because ooh, these ooh, these things ooh. are shaping our imaginations and our thought. Yeah. Okay, so what if you don't see yourself as part of a story? Then the only story you see is that which comes to you through the arts. So you don't have a compare and contrast. Mm -hmm. You don't have a filter of saying, no, that isn't what the real world is like. And yeah. so... That might be where some of this starts to get more interesting, I think, thinking of this Christianly, of saying that the ideas and images and influences that I see, I'm comparing them to something else and then making, uh, yeah. what, you, what, what did you say, discernment is saying this, not this, right? Right. But if you don't have yeah. a not this, why not? I mean, I've yes. been to multiple Ivy League schools with kids running around with brooms playing Quidditch on the lawn. I mean, you're like, these are some smart kids who are playing a made up game out of a book for little wizards. I don't, I mean, it's why not if you don't have something else going on there? Yep. So, I mean, is that so? Yeah. Th does the comparative element help then us clarify why some people can be so sucked into some things and other people just look at that and be like, Pokemon Go is the dumbest thing I've ever seen? And other people being like, yeah, this is definitely worth my time. How's that work? Yeah. Well, first of all, Pokemon Go can be fun and, and just oh, a nice, yeah. you know, a nice, a, a good game. <laughs> and I know lots of people <laughs> who, who play it. Yeah. But yeah, no, I think no, but I think you're right, though. If you have if you have a kind of grounding, if you are grounded in a story. That gives you a sense of stability that is just it's really incredible and it can help you to really weather all sorts of storms but it also it just it helps you do something very critical which every every grown-up needs to be able to do it helps you to put things into perspective it helps you to say a sentence like okay yes i'm going to yes jk rowling is an extremely creative writer and she's given us this vivid beautiful vision you know vision but also yeah i mean the person who you know created a game called Quidditch and all that is probably not the greatest political analyst on the planet or, you know, the person who 
portrayed one of the X-Men probably isn't fit for the Oval Office. And that's okay. That doesn't mean that, you know, it just means you're, you're able to make those, those distinctions. And also to say, you know, Salman, Salman Rushdie is a gifted writer and a brilliant thinker who should be able to, yeah, to basically to give his perspective and give you his novels. But we can also, I mean, and we can we can welcome that creativity, even if it brings major challenges to us. I think this is a word of challenge to us as Christians as well, because if you haven't noticed, you know, there's, we, we could talk about the double standard here, where if you say one kind of one derogatory thing about any other religion, it's met with swift reprisals. But the, the church is pretty much the laughing stock of just about Oh, yeah. Put every... a crucifix in a jar of urine and call it art, and you're fine. Yep. I mean, yeah. I mean, just about every movie, every television show for a while there, I mean, it was almost a requirement. This has been changing in recent years in a, a refreshing way, but it was almost a requirement that you had some holy fool character who was just sort of the, Christ, you know, the Ned Flanders neighbor in The Simpsons. I mean, just if you had a character like that who was just a, a caricature of Christianity, and usually the person was either a total naive dupe, really stupid, or just this absolute hypocrite. And, you know, that's been happening for years and years and years. But again, Nathan, because I'm grounded in a story and that, and I serve a God who's power and cosmic rulership is in no way threatened by juvenile humor in a TV show, it doesn't really bother me. I mean, there are times where I might wince a little bit, but it doesn't bother me. I certainly don't feel any urge to go out and harm anybody when I see that. So I think, I mean, and this goes back to what you were saying at the the beginning of this episode, I think, Nathan, when you're able to receive abuse like that and slander against, you know, your cherished beliefs without retaliating and without without feeling, you know, vicious anger, maybe more a sense of sadness, then what that does is it communicates a kind of quiet confidence in what you believe. But if you're hyper, hyper defensive and you get really, really angry, that communicates the opposite. So you've been talking about cruciform Christianity. And if you look at the attitude of Christ Mm -hmm. through his passion, there is example, prime example, a plus fits in exactly with what you're saying. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So I, I don't know that there's any way to, to kind of wrap this up. This is more of a, of a, of a kind of moving discussion about a, the non-neutrality of what it is we put into our heads from one. And I think also we we would say we want to offer some prayers for the recovery of Salman Rushdie, and also for the safety of J.K. Rowling. My my son, I know who, who's hearing Harry Potter for the first time, would be <laughs> deeply dismayed if any harm came to her. But yeah, just and also an invitation to think about the way we hold our beliefs and the posture. And what that posture says about our convictions and our confidence in those convictions. I think these are all tremendously important. But I think holding, I mean, application-wise, holding on to that non-neutrality thesis, just recognize what you're putting in your head, it's, it's affecting you and influencing you and, and in some ways predisposing you in a certain direction. Now, that's not a call for total censorship. That's a call for, you know, we just as we want to have a healthy 
balanced diet nutrition-wise, you want to do that with the stuff that you put into your head as well, including the art, including the entertainment. You need balance there. There are many times where my wife will tell me, ah, this is not the week you should be listening to that right now. Or you, you really want to be reading that book right now? And she's right. She's right. So I think that's one way to basically just move forward with wise living is having a sort of balanced diet when it comes to what you're putting into your head and so recognizing the consequences. Yeah, can there. we run that two, two directions then? So one is to say that what I'm watching, what I'm engaging with in the arts or whatever, yeah, we'll just use the arts broadly there, um, isn't neutral and that it is influencing, is influencing the way that I see the world. If you're wondering about the degree to which that's happening, then you just need to look at your actions and your attitudes and your feelings on certain things. Because what you do is the most clear manifestation of what you believe. So if you're curious about the effect that some of this stuff has on you, look at the life that you're leading in the real world. What are you anxious about? What are you upset about? What are you fearful about? Or what are you really hopeful about? And what can you kind of laugh and turn the other cheek about? Uh, it's a it's an expression of where your confidence really lies, who you think is actually in charge of the world, and what you think your responsibilities are on the other side of that. So I think all in all, um, bit of a roving conversation here. Uh, start out with what? Mystical realism? Uh, thanks for the education there, Cameron. Um, and um, wait, what was it? Magic realism. Magic realism. Magic realism. Okay. So there's magic realism, but there's realism realism. Uh, and that is the life that we lead that can be deeply influenced by these other things. So anyway, hopefully this has been an encouragement to you to think about the way you can uh, construct the filters in your life of what is worth putting into your mind, being realistic about the fact that nothing is neutral, that is shipped into your home, that you are the target audience and there's an agenda behind everything that you consume. The algorithm is not your friend. Can't hear that too often enough, uh, too often. But then the flip side of that is like, let's look at our real lives and what we're doing with the time that we've been allotted on this earth. And that will tell us a lot about some of the stories that we've bought into. And let's continue to be involved in daily spiritual formation and corporate uh, worship in a way that we can remind ourselves of what the truth really is. And then when we compare everything else to that, it gives us, uh, yeah, parameters for joyfully engaging the world, taking it as it is, but also relieves us of the pressure of needing to defend some things and also calling us to action in other categories of our lives. Can't spell that out for you in detail. I think that'll be different for every single one of us. But anyway, I hope we've stirred up something interesting for you to think about here. You've been listening to Thinking Out Loud, a podcast where we think out loud about current events and Christian hope. Thanks for listening to Thinking Out Loud. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, book Nathan or Cameron, or if you'd like to support us financially, whether through a one-time donation or on a monthly basis, you can do so on the donate page at www.toltogether.com. That's toltogether.com. And please consider leaving us a five-star rating and sharing this content with your friends. It really does help.